Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Well, sorry for the lateness of this episode. In fact, it's a week late. But a few things got in the way. It's funny to be suffering from virtual jet lag last week. I was working filling in for a colleague on a different account that I normally work on and had to start so early. And for me, being on afternoon shift for over a decade, it was quite difficult. Now, my body clock is permanently shifted four hours behind normal people, which is great going to Thailand to see Kate, as they're three or four hours behind, depending on summertime. Anyway, let's get into tonight. And I started trying to research and write something on the Madeleine McCann case. The problem with this case is that to do it real justice and not go over the basics you end up down so many rabbit holes that never end. Most people know the basics, so there's no point going over all that. For instance, just trying to verify witness statements on timelines, where they were at what time, is almost impossible. Something as simple as trying to get to the bottom of the, say, the initial photos that were printed out on the night of the alleged disappearance, that can take you all day reading statements of those involved, checking timelines, and then searching online for the specs of the printer and paper that was used, and also how they got access to the photo files to print them out. For instance, some statements say Russell O'Brien, now he's the one who organised these photos that night, and he's one of Kate and Jerry's friends, spoke to Ann Tinney, now that was one of the nannies from the daycare, now, she was still working that night at the Ocean Club. Now, Russell asked Tierney that he needed a card reader to print off photos. Now, she didn't have one, but she had a Kodak G600 photo printer that you could plug a USB key into to print from. Now, Russell mentions a USB stick, but unless you have a camera docked onto the printer, you can't print from a USB stick. So, did he have a memory card or a USB stick? Now, how did he get the photos onto a USB stick if he did have one? Now, Kate's Canon 620 PowerShot camera is PicBridge compatible via the camera's USB cable. That means you can plug it into this Kodak printer and print from it. But this camera, Kate's camera, the 620 PowerShot, this isn't mentioned at all. So just trying to find out if the photos were printed well before the announcement of the disappearance, as some suggest, because, say, maybe Madeline's disappearance was staged, it's so time-consuming. Also, there's just so much bullshit just on this one small point, but it is such an important point because people say that it would take too much time to print 20 to 30 photos that were printed off that night and that it would run out of ink before it could. Well, this is why you've got to check all these details. The way these Kodak printers print is you buy a photo pack. 
Now, it comes with paper stock and a cartridge matched to the exact amount of prints available in the pack. So you get 50, 100 or 20 packs that can be purchased. Now, about the time it took to print them, well, there's a lot of misinformation that they couldn't have got the printer, couldn't have got the printer, set it up, found the photo, and then printed 20 or 30 photos in the time frame that they said they did it in. Well, the thing is, if you just print, start printing, you can grab the first couple of photos, then come back for the rest later. See, to print this many photos off would take you at least 40 minutes. But if you wait for the first photos, it only takes a minute for each photo to print. So, you, like I said, you can go grab the first few photos, give those out, come back for the rest later. Now, this is what Russell said he did if you bother checking his statements. But there's so much noise surrounding this case. And also, if the printer had a 50-pack installed, well, 20 or 30 photos can easily be printed off. The amount of photos you get in the pack, the photo stock, is matched to the the printer cartridge. So some people saying, oh, it'll run out of ink and all this. It's just bullshit. As you can see, just this one seemingly minor but quite important point, it can take all day to research. Then, when you try and work out when, say, the last time a reliable witness saw Madeline alive, again, you go down so many rabbit holes, mainly because of the Tapper 7, Kate and Jerry's initial statements. When you look at their respective statements made later, they just contain so many inconsistencies that it's so confusing to work out really what happened on the night. Now, I have read extensively through the PJ files online. Now, they are the files the Portuguese authorities put online when they shelved the case. Now, they are quite an interesting read, especially the Tapas 7, Kate and Jerry's statements. And I'm just assuming you know the Tapas 7 if you know anything about this case. I mean, if I had to go anywhere in, the, in Portugal, I think I'd go to the Tapas bar for a dinner. For sure. You can see why people don't trust them though, because either their stories change or they are really vague, especially in the follow-up interviews. So you may think I am waffling on a bit here, but what I'm trying to get to is that there's no way I can cover this case in an episode or of or two or even three. So what I do suggest is have a listen if you haven't already, or maybe have another listen to refresh, as this is all in the news again. Listen to the podcast Maddie by Mark Sunakonako. I can never say his name, but by Mark. Also have a look at Richard D. Hall's videos about the case, which can be found at his website, richplanet.net. Now, it's not the best organized website in the world, but you'll find many videos he has done on the case, a lot of different aspects. The one you should look at first is Statement Analysis of Jerry and Kate McCann, in which he interviews Peter Hyatt, a respected statement analysis expert. Now, this is a must. Also, search for Peter Hyatt's YouTube channel for not only more McCann statement analysis, but he goes 
he goes over quite a few other well-known cases. Joe Beno-Ramsey's one of them, and he's really, really good at what he does. Okay, so let's get into the news now. Last week, another suspect in the Madeleine McCann case, Christian Bruckner, was splashed all over the UK and world news as this, and now I've got air quotes here, new suspect. Well, no, he has been suspected for a long time and was cleared by the Portuguese years ago. Now, let's get the tinfoil hats out again. I suspect it was planted in the news to distract what's going on in the UK at the moment because of the virus and all these other things. Still, maybe new evidence or new information did surface. I don't know. The Germans are keeping that information close to their chests. One thing I must say, though, about the McCann case is that if you ever hear of anything in the news about a close family friend that said this or that, don't believe it without checking as those close fam- that close family friend is likely to be Clarence Mitchell, the McCann's slimy, lying spin doctor. Again, I won't go into this scumbag. Richard D. Hall will tell you all about him. Just be aware that he's usually the one that gets pro-McCann stories planted into the news. He's a Look, he's one of the slimiest, smuggest bastards you would ever have met. Okay, so that's why I'm not covering the Madeleine McCann case tonight. Too much bullshit surrounds it, honestly. Now, uh, look, I'll just, before I get into what we're doing tonight, I'll tell you what I think happened. Either Maddie died earlier than the night she allegedly went missing and the McCanns and their mates, the Tapper 7, are covering, uh, covering it up. Now, I reckon they can all keep their mouths shut. It's not impossible, but that's my opinion on all the research I've done and the research I've seen. I hope that if this German suspect is brought up again this week, they get a bit more detail that I'm proven wrong. But And I will admit I'm wrong if that happens, but I really don't know. Anyway. Let's get on to tonight's case. Now, the dude they're talking about in the German prison, well, he wasn't the only one suspected of being involved in Madeline's disappearance. There was also this guy called Martin Ney. Now, he was born on the 12th of December, 1970, in Bremen, Germany. Now, I haven't any real info on Ney's early years, but by 17... He blackmailed his family doctor and the parents of a classmate. Now, he writes a note to the parents. You give us 150,000 marks and we won't kidnap your children. If you reject the proposal or alert the police, one of your children will die. Now, that's Deutsch marks. They didn't have heroes back then. And again, this is West Germany when there was West and East Germany. He's caught, and in early 1989, geez, they take their time about it, at the Blumenthal District Court, he's convicted and sentenced to eight weekends of community service for attempted extortion. The conviction is entered into what's called an education register. Now, when he turned 24... His record was deleted from this education register and he decided he wanted to foster a child. Now, this 
isn't a normal type of thing for a single 24-year-old student living alone in a one-bedroom apartment would sort of do. But there was a shortage of foster parents. And the youth welfare officer that dealt with all this accepted him as a foster father. Now the judge that presided over his blackmail case... Well, he was also the one who dealt with the formalities of fostering the child. Now, he granted custody of a 12-year-old boy to Nay in 1996. This child lived with Nay until he was the legal age, and he reckons when he left, he was never sexually abused by him. Okay, whatever. Now, while studying, Nay worked alongside youth workers, and he familiarised himself with the client's and with their locations that they frequented, like youth hostels and all this sort of stuff. Nay completed a teaching degree, but he didn't go through with the second state examination. In 2000, he applied for fake university certificates in social work to get a childcare position at a Hamburg foundation. Now, he ended up working there until early 2008. Look, I reckon you can put anything on your resume. I think most HR departments are that incompetent that they never, never, ever check you out. But hey, there you go. He moved to Hamburg in 2001 and again lived alone. He was described by those that knew him as unobtrusive, friendly and a nice guy. Well, there you go there. In 2005, he was accused of sexual abuse by a 25-year-old that said Nay abused him as a teenager in 1996. Now, at the time, he had also been reported by a mother for touching her two sons. Now, he got out of the two cases by paying a fine of 1,800 euros. Now, also, the first case ended up being outside the statute of limitations, so he only had to really pay his way out of the second case. In 2006, Nay blackmailed a social worker from Berlin by threatening to report him for possessing child porn. Now, Nay demanded €20,000 for his silence. He was reported to police and when they went to his flat to interview him, he opened the door in his undies and there was a 15-year-old boy lying on the mattress in the living room. Now, this boy was in the care of Nay at the time as he was a social worker and in charge of him. But police really didn't investigate that at all, for fuck's sake. I mean, you got this young kid, you're walking around your undies, you got this young kid, you're supposed to be in your care. They just didn't care. But anyway... He would get busted for the blackmail and he got a 10-month suspended sentence for attempted extortion. Now, as part of the investigation, investigators did a search of Nay's computer. They found, amongst other things, 30,000 child porn images. Now, charges for possession of the images just didn't happen because investigators couldn't determine when the images were saved on the computer. Now, they... They'd been last accessed so long beforehand that they were also out of the statute of limitation. They closed that case. Now, little did they know at the time who some of the images on his computer were of. Now, the CD of the the photos 
That wasn't checked at all. It was just put in storage. So if they actually looked a bit further at these images, you'd think they would, they could have got some leads on some very important cases. Now, as you can probably see, Nay is quite a dangerous person, but he seems to keep getting slaps on the wrists for his crimes. Now, this will come back to haunt these authorities. You see, there's been a serial abuser of young boys in the area and three unsolved murders of young boys. Witnesses describe this person as strikingly tall, as a stocky man with a deep voice speaking German who wore dark clothes, a mask and gloves. He became known as the masked man and the black man. The first murder was of 13-year-old Stefan Yar, who disappeared from a boarding school in Schiesel on the 31st of March in 1992. His body would be found five weeks later, buried in the Verden Dunes, approximately 35 minutes' drive southwest of Schiesel. He was buried with his hands tied behind his back. Then just over three years later, on the night of July 24th, 1995, Eight-year-old Dennis Rostel disappeared from a camp near Selkanor, which is near Schelsvig, north of Hamburg, and close to the Danish border. His body was discovered on the 8th of August 1995 after being found by German tourists and he was buried in a sand dune near Vinderup in Denmark. Now, this wasn't the first attack at the Selkanor tent camp. On August of 1992, a nine-year-old child was sexually abused by a masked man at the camp. At the end of 1994, a 13-year-old boy woke up in the Selkanor camp when the masked man began touching him. Now, about 10 minutes later, he disappeared. Two days later, the masked man again touched another 13-year-old boy at the camp. So someone's coming in and out of this camp. Now, I think after the first few times that this happened, I think they did upgrade the security of this camp. Anyway, on the 5th of September 2001, nine-year-old Dennis Klein disappeared from his room at the Schulenhain Wurzbüttel. I hope I got that right. Anyway, two weeks later... He was found murdered by a mushroom picker in a bush on a forest road between Kirchtimk and Hepstead. A special task force, which are called SOCOs or Special Task Force, Special Task Force Dennis was set up to solve Dennis Rostell's murder in 1995. This would come to include the similar murders of Stefan Jar in 1992 and Dennis Klein in 2001. They would also link the masked man to 40 other abuse cases. Now, when they profiled this masked man, or they call him German Muskin Man, they found he was athletic at first, but he seems to have put on weight over the years. He wore dark clothes, gloves and a mask. He would enter tent camps, youth hostels and single-family houses, usually low-income single-family houses, to abuse children. And he wasn't scared of what he was doing. He not only entered these places at night, but he did so with the high chance of being discovered, as there would be many other boys or even guardians that could have caught him in the act. In fact, several times he did have to do a runner after the boy resisted or he was seen by other boys or staff at these facilities. 
Now, the three murder victims were transported vast distances in the masked man's car. One was even taken over a guarded border into Denmark. So this guy is really pushing the limit of risk-taking, you would think. Now, the task force realised that the masked man seemed to know a lot about the locations that most of these children were attacked at and that he planned these attacks quite well. Now, Soko Dennis would release to the public what they knew in the hopes someone would come forward as they continued to investigate the murders. Now, they had 7,800 reports come into them and they didn't get one lead in the case. Now, in August 2010, a witness came forward after seeing an old documentary on the murders. He'd been jogging near where Dennis Klein had been kidnapped remembered seeing the perpetrator and Dennis in a car on the forest road. Now, this led to a sketch being made of the described scene with the car, Dennis and this this guy driving it, and also the type of car that was thought to be used. Now, this was released in February 2011, and then further good leads came in. On April 15, 2011, the police arrested a prime suspect. In February 2011, the police searched for a car that could possibly belong to the serial offender, and the search yielded no results, but a 1995 abuse victim of the masked man, he sees this search, and he suddenly remembers that years ago, a social worker asked him about his home on a holiday vacation. He even knows the name. Martin. And it doesn't take long for investigators to identify this Martin as Martin Nay. And he's the guy who gets arrested. Now, Martin Nay, who at the time was 40 years old, he quickly confessed after the first interrogation by these investigators. Now, Nay admitted admitted to murdering Stephen Jar, Dennis Rostel and Dennis Klein. And he also admitted to abusing about 40 other children. Nay told investigators that he killed to cover up the rapes and to not be identified. He said that he strangled Stefan Yar on the night of his disappearance because he thought he'd seen the number plate on his car and he would get caught if he let him go. In Dennis Rostel's case, case, Nay drove him in his car And they ended up spending a few days holidaying near Hostelbro in Denmark before he strangled him. Nay suffocated Dennis Klein because Dennis fought back too hard when he was abducting him. Now on February the 27th, the judges sentenced Martin Nay to life in prison for triple murder and 20 sexual abuse charges. He must also remain in preventative detention if he's released as a psychiatric assessor classified Nay as relapse prone. So Islanders, that's Martin Nay who was able to prey on his victims with ease as the local police really didn't investigate him thoroughly when they had the chance and they had many, many chances. It took them 20 years to lock him away. He's also suspected of at least two other murders, including the 7th of April 2004 abduction of 10-year-old Jonathan Coulomb from France, 
whose body was found nearly two weeks later on the 19th. The other murder was of Nicky Verstappen, an 11-year-old Dutch boy who disappeared on the 10th of August 1998 from a summer camp he was attending in Brunson, Limburg. His body was found on the 11th of August in nearby, 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 I can't speak, in nearby Landgraf. He was cleared of the murder of Nicky Verstappen and a Dutchman, Joseph Brech, has been arrested and as far as I can see, he has been charged with murder and it has gone to trial, but I can't see whether or not this trial has concluded. So that's one of the other scumbags that was at one time, along with Christian Bruckner, suspected as being involved in the McCann case. Now, I suppose I should mention the latest that I've been able to dig up in this McCann's case. Now, as I write this, Christian Bruckner denies anything to do with the abduction of Madeleine McCann. Now, German police have announced that Madeleine is dead and are appealing to witnesses who may have seen Bruckner's cars, an old white van with a bottom section painted in yellow, and an older model Jaguar in the Prior de Luz area at the time of Madeline's abduction in April of 2007. They say they are confident Bruckner is the perpetrator, but they don't have enough evidence to convict him and won't release what evidence they do have that he did it. It's crazy times, people. Even We even have people coming out saying they can see his van in satellite photos taken at the time. Now, I saw these, and they, all they show is a little white rectangle near where Bruckner was staying at the time. Now, that's just noise. That's noise in the media. That's not evidence. The German police say they've sent two letters to the McCanns, and they say they haven't received them. And now it looks like maybe the UK cops haven't passed them on. For real, this is the weirdest case of a missing kid that I've ever come across. Now, are the Germans trying to stitch up Bruckner? Who knows? Now, I I think half the reason why so many people think the McCanns had something to do with the disappearance of Madeline is what they've said and how they've acted. It's just not really normal. I don't know what's supposed to be normal, but some of this shit that they've done. Look, for instance, some of the quotes that Kate Healy, or McCann as she goes by when it suits her, what she said are really strange and you could say almost disturbing. Now, the first one, you may have to put your little tinfoil hat on again, a little bit, but she says, Who, whoever she is with, she will be given them her tuppence worth. Now, this is a bit disturbing in that tuppence is slang for a young girl's vagina. So make of that what you think if it's a, I don't know, a Freudian slip or not. But the other one that's similar to this is really disturbing, where in her book she writes, I asked Jerry apprehensively if he had any really horrible thoughts or visions of Madeline. He nodded. Haltingly, I told him about the awful pictures that scrolled through my head of her body, her perfect little genitals torn apart. Now what the fuck? What mother would say that, let alone publish it in a book? Anyway, the latest statement from Operation Grange, the task force set up to review and investigate the case, is Operation Grange Statement, June 19, 
2020. The Met received one letter from the BKA on the 12th of June, which was passed to the family. The letter did not state that there was evidence or proof that Madeline is dead. The MPS continues to investigate Madeline's disappearance as a missing person investigation. No letter has been received by the Met from the German prosecutor. Now, let's have a little bit closer look at that statement. Now, the bit where they said the letter did not state that there was evidence or proof that Madeline is dead. Well, yeah, that's probably true. But the letter may have said they strongly believe she's dead. They reckon she's dead. She's not coming back alive. She's dead. But they just need more evidence to prove it. This is why when you get all this stuff in the news, especially, like I said, from that Clarence Mitchell, you've really got to look right behind it, where it's coming and why it's being said. Now, this Operation Grange was set up to review the case years ago, but in doing so, they started with the assumption that Madeline was abducted and didn't start with a clean slate. I mean, how can you review a case when you already are seeing it as an an abduction case and won't investigate Kate Jerry and the Tapper 7 as potential suspects in her disappearance. Now, this is widely being criticised by many, including law enforcement officials and just people who know how these procedures work. Now, I could go on and on about the case. I'm getting sucked into it again. But like I said at the start, have a look at some of Richard D. Hall's research, Peter Hyatt's statement analysis and the Maddie podcast. Maybe if this case is, if it ever comes to some sort of conclusion and Maddie is found or her remains are found and we have a conviction, I might do a full episode about it. Now, I did try to reach out to Richard D. Hall a while back, but he hasn't got back to me. I wanted to interview him and discuss his research. Anyone who might know him, please let him know. I'd love to interview him. Maybe I just went to his spam box. And I would be happy to supply the questions to him beforehand. So let's see what happens in this case in the next few weeks. So that's about it for tonight. A bit of Maddie news, reasonings behind things, and the Martin Nay case, which when I read it, that was just really, really disturbing sort of thing. So let's get on to the Patreon. Thanks to all my past, present and new patrons for your financial support. It does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all. Thank you all so much. Very appreciated. Especially Krista Moore, Mandy Hockey, Leslie Sebastian and Deborah Marshall. Thank you so much. And uh, Patreon com forward slash true crime island is the address to go to if you also want to join up i did email kelly owen and scully can you please check your inboxes for your reward thingos yes you can get rewards if you don't like the monthly thing you can also donate to paypal which fiona somerville and clarence s benton jr did paypal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com Support yourself before you support the island. The other link is paypal.me forward slash true crime island. I also have merch at Threadless and Redbubble now. Go to Redbubble and search for true crime island. Also, if you do order anything and you have any problems with the merch, not only email 
threadless or red bubble, just let me know as well, just in case I need to fix something up on my end. There's links to my YouTube channel. Just search for True Crime Island and feel free to like, subscribe and comment. Hit the little bell for notifications. Now, I usually release the YouTube version the day after the audio version or that night. Now, you can also support the show by rating and reviewing iTunes and all that sort of stuff. Also, by sharing it with your friends and family, which is really important. All the links, including social media, are on my website at truecrimeisland.com. By the way, if you've got this far, I am giving something away at 1,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel. So we're nearly there. We're about 100 or so short. So get on there. Everyone has a chance. So... If you want to contact me, my na- my my email, Jesus, I'm getting a bit excited, <laughs> carried away. My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com, and that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. As I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fuck,